Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Subray, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. See for yourself at pariahpickups.com. And if you want to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music for details. I'm also available for speaking engagements. For more information on that, go to brentjensenmusic.com or email info at brentjensenmusic.com. This week and next week on the show, I wanted to do something a little bit different. Guns N' Roses singer W. Axel Rose has been one of a small handful of artists that have been responsible for eliciting a fuller spectrum of emotions from me. Aside from the obvious ones, there's been anger, resentment, and even pity. Regardless of what the emotions are, what this ultimately means is that as an artist, Axl Rose succeeded. He achieved a significant and lasting impact with me and with countless other people. And at the end of the day, most importantly, this is how Axel Rose will be remembered. As such, I want to dedicate two episodes to the man. The first episode will be the obligatory look through his early years and onward through his life. And the second will look through mine, sometimes as a critic, sometimes a cheerleader, sometimes a skeptic, but always as an Axel and a Guns N' Roses fan, from all the way back to the summer of 1987. In February of 1962, William Bruce Rose Jr. was born to 16-year-old high school student Sharon Elizabeth and William Bruce Rose, who was 20 years old. The pregnancy was not planned. Bruce Rose was considered a troubled delinquent in Lafayette, Indiana, and he and Elizabeth separated when Rose Jr. was just two years old. Before disappearing from Lafayette, Rose abducted his son and allegedly molested him at this time. Elizabeth remarried a man named Stephen Bailey and changed her son's surname to Bailey as well. William Bruce Bailey now had a younger sister, and a half-brother. It's been said that Bailey and his younger siblings were beaten regularly and were raised in a very oppressive environment. The household was highly religious, and Bailey and his new family attended Pentecostal church services up to eight times a week, including Sunday school. Televisions were not permitted in the home, nor was music. They were believed to be satanically influenced. Despite his father's insistence that music was evil, Bailey found comfort in music at a very young age. He compromised by singing in the church choir from the age of five, and later performed church services with his sister and brother as the Bailey Trio. Later on, as a student at Jefferson High School, Bailey sang in school band and learned how to play the piano. Bailey placed a lot of effort into his performances in choir and began developing multiple singing voices to purposely confuse his instructors. Bailey formed a rock band with friends around the same time, one of those friends being Jeffrey Isbell, now more popularly known as guitarist Izzy Stradlin. It's a little-known fact that Stradlin played drums at that point, not guitar. During this period... 
Bailey was also friends with Anna Hoon, who introduced him to her younger brother, Shannon Hoon. When he was 17, Bailey was looking for something in the family home, and he came across insurance documents. It was at this time that he discovered that Stephen Bailey was not his biological father, and that his real dad was, in fact, William Bruce Rose. Immediately upon learning this, Bailey unofficially readopted his birth name of Rose. He would never meet his biological father as an adult. William Rose Sr. was killed in 1984 by an acquaintance in Illinois. His body was never found. Axel Rose didn't find out about the murder until many years later. After he learned of his real family origins, Rose's temperament changed. He got into scrapes with the local authorities and became a known juvenile delinquent in his hometown. He wished to be known only as W. Rose, not William Rose, because he didn't want to use the complete name of his father. He was arrested more than 20 times for things like battery and alcohol-related incidents. He spent time in jail up to three months at one point. During Rose's late teens, a psychiatrist concluded that his delinquent behavior was evidence of psychosis. During this assessment, he made note of Rose's high IQ. In 1986, Rose intentionally overdosed on pills, explaining that he wasn't able to deal with the stress in his life any longer. He woke up in a hospital, and his experiences there inspired the lyrics to Guns N' Roses' song, Coma. As his criminal behavior gradually worsened and longer jail stints loomed, Rose left Lafayette for Los Angeles just before he turned 21 in December of 1982. One of the reasons why he did this was because his childhood friend Jeff Isbell had moved there two years earlier to start a musical career as a drummer. He hoped that they could get reacquainted, maybe form a band together. But Isbell was already in one. He gave up drums after a disastrous turn in a punk band called Naughty Women, joining a metal band called Shire as a rhythm guitarist. He was now known as Izzy Stradlin. After getting to Los Angeles, Rose started his own band called Axel. One of his bandmates suggested to him that as the lead singer, he could change his name from William Bailey to Axel Rose the same way Vincent Fernier did when he fronted the Alice Cooper band a little more than a decade earlier. Rose would legally change his name to W. Axel Rose four years later. Whether Rose realized at the time that Axel Rose was an anagram for oral sex, or when you add the W, the acronym of his new name was WAR, is unknown. After the band Axel was over with, Rose met a guitar player outside the Troubadour in Los Angeles named Kevin Lawrence. A few days later, he joined Lawrence's band called Rapid Fire. When it came time to reunite with his pal Izzy Stradlin, Rose parted ways with Lawrence to form Hollywood Rose with him and another guitar player named Chris Weber. In early 1984, Hollywood Rose recorded a demo that included Anything Goes, Shadow of Your Love, and Reckless Life, and also a song called Rocker, 
Slash and drummer Steven Adler joined them for a brief period before the band fizzled out, with Rose leaving to join L.A. Guns, a band led by guitarist and Izzy Stradlin roommate Tracy Guns. Rose was in that band for six or seven months, but the manager of L.A. Guns disliked Rose and wanted to fire him from the band. According to Tracy Guns, he and Rose sat down and agreed that they would continue on together as L.A. Guns, coming up with the name Guns and Roses as a name for the record label that they intended to start for the purposes of releasing singles and albums. In March of 1985, Rose and his L.A. Guns bandmate Tracy Guns decided it was time to merge L.A. Guns with Hollywood Rose and form a new band, and they would use Guns N' Roses as the name of this new band. The members of the group at this time were Rose, Guns, Stradlin, drummer Rob Gardner, and a bassist named Ole Beach, a Danish musician who had previously played in Merciful Fate. He was fired from Guns N' Roses after only one show and replaced by Duff McKagan. In 1991, after Guns N' Roses played a stadium show in Copenhagen at the height of their fame, Ole Beach drowned in a Copenhagen lake shortly after. With alarming levels of heroin, and alcohol found in his body. His family believes, based on his depression and subsequent drug problems following the dismissal from a band that would go on to become global superstars, that Ole Beach committed suicide, drowning himself shortly after the Copenhagen show. Over the next three months, Tracy Guns left the band, with Rob Gardner leaving shortly after. Childhood friends Slash and Steven Adler rejoined, and now the band consisted of Rose, Slash, Izzy Stradlin, Duff McKagan, and Steven Adler. This lineup debuted at the Troubadour and proceeded to destroy the LA club circuit, amassing a large fan base and attracting the attention of a lot of A&R reps. The band milked all of them for expensive dinners to talk contracts before finally signing with Tom Zutout, and Geffen Records in March of 1986 for half the money rival Chrysalis Records was offering. The difference being, Chrysalis wanted to tone down the image of the band, with Geffen giving them full license to be who they really were. Shortly before the band signed a deal that earned them a $75,000 advance, Rose had been working a number of jobs to survive, including one at the Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. He and Stradlin also smoked cigarettes as part of the UCLA scientific study. They were paid $8 an hour. When Appetite for Destruction came out in July 1987, it didn't exactly light the world on fire. It wasn't until two things happened, the first being Geffen label CEO David Geffen making a call to a contact at MTV to ask them to play the Welcome to the Jungle video which they finally conceded to do, albeit at 3 a.m. The second thing was the success of the single Sweet Child of Mine, a song Rose wrote about then-girlfriend Erin Everly. Interesting side note here. Geffen A&R guy Tom Zuto deliberately buried Sweet Child on side two and loaded up side one of Appetite with straight-up rockers to showcase the band's raw aggression, which he saw as their most impressive strength. 
After the release of Sweet Child of Mine as a single with accompanying video, it was the song of the summer in 1988, and by the time Appetite's third single, Paradise City, would be released, the album shot up to the number one position of the Billboard Top 200. Appetite for Destruction has sold more than 35 million copies worldwide and holds the distinction of being the best-selling debut album of all time in the United States. The album took six weeks to complete, two weeks recording the basic tracks, and a month for overdubs. Rose's vocals took the longest of all because he insisted on doing them all one line at a time. After the release of follow-up EP Lies in November 1988, Rose began what would be a very long foray into controversy of one type or another. Rose was called out for his lyrics from the song One in a Million on Lies, in which he uses slurs to describe blacks and homosexuals. As this controversy swirled, Rose fueled the fire by claiming that he was not being racist and that the N-word could be used beyond the denigration of blacks. Slash, who is half black himself, was not pleased. Rose walked that line of thinking back in 1992, saying the song reflected his impressionable views as a small-town teen in a big city for the first time, having experienced culture shock. With respect to the homophobia, Rose attributed his attitude to unsavory experiences he'd had with gay men in his past, allegedly avoiding an attempted rape in his teens. Despite this controversy, the success of Appetite for Destruction and Lies positioned Rose as Rock's most prominent frontman at this time, and he called all the shots. When Rolling Stone asked him to appear on the cover by himself, he insisted that the interview and the cover photo be provided by his friends, writer Del James and photographer Robert John. Rolling Stone conceded. In early 1990, the controversy continued. Recording sessions for the new record were often aborted by Stephen Adler's drug problem. Adler was sacked in favor of cult drummer Matt Sorum. But there were other problems afoot. Gunn's longtime manager, Alan Niven, was fired, a move allegedly forced by Rose against the wishes of the rest of the band. Rose refused to complete the new album until Niven was gone. Former roadie Doug Goldstein was brought in as a replacement at Rose's insistence. Rose and his sweet child of mine girlfriend Erin Everly were married on April 28, 1990, at a Las Vegas chapel. Less than a month later, Rose filed for divorce. Then the couple reconciled, and Everly became pregnant. In October of 1990, she suffered a miscarriage. Rose was said to be deeply affected by this and ratcheted up the tension in their relationship. Everly left Rose after an altercation and their relationship was over in January of 1991. Three years later, Everly accused Rose of physical and emotional abuse in a filed lawsuit, which was settled out of court. Rose next became involved in a relationship with supermodel Stephanie Seymour in the middle of 1991, and she would appear in the Guns N' Roses videos Don't Cry and November Rain 
The two were engaged in February 1993, but separated three weeks later. The two-and-a-half-year tour that would follow, without an album to promote yet, was founded on controversy. The tour was filled with excesses, with huge elaborate parties after every show, each with its own theme. There were late starts, on-stage rants, and the inciting of riots. Rose began to develop his reputation for showing up late for shows around this time, appearing hours after the band was scheduled to go on. There was the St. Louis riot in July 1991, which resulted after onstage requests from Rose for security personnel to confiscate a fan's video camera. Most of you have seen the footage, I'm sure, of Rose literally diving into the crowd to grab the camera. After he's pulled back onto the stage, he throws the microphone down at the stage and storms off, and the ensuing riot causes an estimated $200,000 in damages. A year later, another riot took place Montreal's Olympic Stadium during a co-headlining show with Metallica. Prior to Guns N' Roses going on, Metallica's James Hetfield was seriously injured in a pyro accident. When they were asked to go on earlier for the sake of the crowd, Guns N' Roses was not able to do so, as Rose was once again nowhere to be found. When they finally did go on, Rose walked off after an hour, citing throat issues. Downtown Montreal was destroyed by rioters, to the tune of an estimated $400,000 in damages. A few months later, Rose was convicted of property damage and assault for the St. Louis riot, receiving two years of probation and a fine of $50,000. Around this time, Rose was starting to get into homeopathic medicine and paying more attention to his own psychology, focusing on past life regression therapy. He publicly shared supposed uncovered memories of being sexually abused by his biological father when he was two years old, which he claimed negatively impacted his emotional well-being. Rose hated touring, and he attributed the many illnesses he contracted to it. He believed that his health problems resulted from his unconsciously lowering his own immunity resistance as a form of self-punishment. Later in the 90s, Rose employed a personal psychic to determine who he should work with and who he shouldn't. Based on her looking at photographs of potential employees, so she could read their auras and subsequent to the Montreal and St. Louis, Missouri riots, she also advised Rose to avoid tour stops in places that began with the letter M. And for a while, he did. The final show of the Use Your Illusion tour was on July 17, 1993, in Buenos Aires. It would be Rose's last live performance for almost eight years. The controversy, of course, continued. A month later, Rose was taken to court by original Guns drummer Stephen Adler on the grounds that he had been wrongly fired from the band. Rose lost the case, and he opted to settle out of court, paying Adler $2.5 million and 15% of the royalties for all of Adler's recorded performances prior to his firing. That November... Guns N' Roses released an album of cover songs with a curious title, 
The spaghetti incident was reportedly a reference to one of Adler's many court claims of his abuse at the hands of Rose, specifically that Rose took a plate of Adler's leftover spaghetti without his consent, referred to by Adler's lawyer as the spaghetti incident. This record included a hidden track not shown in the track listing. The track was put there by Rose, and it was called Look at Your Game Girl, a song written by convicted murderer Charles Manson. It was said that Rose intended this to be a personal message for his ex-girlfriend, Stephanie Seymour. More controversy ensued, of course, ultimately forcing the band to pass on the song's royalties to the son of one of Manson's victims. Guns N' Roses continued to splinter. After a childhood friend Izzy Stradlin left Guns, in large part because of Rose's behavior, he was replaced by guitarist Gilby Clark. In June 1994, Rose did not renew Gilby Clark's contract with Guns N' Roses without first consulting the rest of the band, claiming Clark was not an original member and only a, quote, hired hand. Axel brought in another one of his childhood friends, a guy named Paul Tobias, and this pushed Slash to the brink. Slash himself would leave the band two years later, after months of inactivity and unproductive collaboration. Drummer Matt Sorum was fired the following year, and when bassist Duff McKagan left shortly after, Rose was left as the sole original member of the once mighty Guns N' Roses. With the collapse of his band, Rose seemed to go underground. The band made no mention of a breakup or dissolution, nor did it generate new material or perform for many years. Everything just seemed kind of frozen. There were rumblings of new developments every now and again, that Zach Wilde was joining the band, and even that Rose was learning how to play lead guitar so he could replace Slash. By the late 1990s, Axl Rose had almost completely withdrawn from the public eye and was considered to be a recluse, holed up with his live-in psychic in his Malibu mansion. Eventually, there were whispers of a new album in the works, reportedly called Chinese Democracy. Rose re-emerged in 2001 with a brand new version of Guns N' Roses at Rockin' Rio 3, intending to launch the Chinese Democracy Tour. Performances were spotty, and a particularly disastrous surprise appearance on the 2002 MTV Video Music Awards seemed to set off a series of Rose no-shows for subsequent scheduled concerts, followed by riots, and ultimately leading to the cancellation of the tour. Rose once again withdrew from public view, popping up here and there periodically with comments that the release of this new Chinese democracy record was always right around the corner. It was a full-length record, then it was a double album, because the band had so much material. Then it was two separate albums. But regardless of what it would be, Chinese democracy continually failed to appear. In November 2008, 15 years after the release of their last record, Chinese Democracy was finally released via an exclusive deal with electronics retail giant Best Buy. The controversy continued even now, 
Rose contributed nothing to the record's promotion and had in fact gone missing in the months after the release. He didn't return phone calls from anyone at his record label, Interscope Records, and later Rose placed the blame on Interscope, claiming they didn't provide the necessary support that the new album required. A litany of lawsuits were launched back and forth from Rose and a long list of adversaries, former band managers, record companies, Activision, you name it. Most of the cases were settled out of court. Eventually, and maybe unsurprisingly, Axl Rose and Slash gradually crept towards burying their many hatchets with each other and finally reunited in 2016, which was one of the most anticipated reunion tours in the history of rock. As for the rest of the original members, Duff McKagan would also return to the band. Izzy Stradlin was offered a lesser cut of the money and declined. And Stephen Adler was never offered an invitation to return. Rose and Slash shared a stage for the first time in more than 22 years when they played a surprise show in April at their old L.A. stomping grounds, the Troubadour, where it all started for them, with a warm-up gig before a tour of headlining festival shows. That tour was hugely successful, becoming the second-highest-grossing concert tour of all time. All this amidst Rose performing some fill-in dates for Brian Johnson in ACDC, in Europe and in the U.S., and by all accounts, demonstrating goodwill, humility, even empathy. And just like that, all of the controversy was gone. The world would see W. Axel Rose in an entirely new light now, with fresh eyes. And on next week's show, you'll see W. Axel Rose through mine. This has been No Sleep Till Subray with Brian Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>